This um, nominations hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We are here today to consider nominees for four crucial positions. The Honorable Alina Romanowski to serve as Ambassador to the Republic of Iraq, Mr. Douglas Hickey to serve as Ambassador to the Republic of Finland, Mr. Stephen Fagan to serve as Ambassador to the Republic of Yemen, and the Honorable Aaron McKee to serve as Assistant Administrator for the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, for Europe and Eurasia. I would like to congratulate each of you on your nominations. Thank you for your service and thank your families who have supported you and will continue to support you in your service to our country. Uh, I understand that Senator Kane would like to introduce um, uh, Mr. Hickey for Ambassador to Finland, but let me turn first with, with, with the, the ranking member of the full committee, um, Senator Risch, like to uh, say a word. Right, very briefly, with the permission of Senator Kane, I know Senator Kane and Mr. Hickey are uh, well acquainted. Um, Mr. Hickey uh, hails from Idaho, and uh, this is a man that's uh, uh, well suited for the position that uh, he has been nominated for. Like a lot of these, when we get a really good one, he didn't seek it out, but uh, the, uh, the uh, request came knocking, and he answered uh, and has an uh, outstanding background in the business community, but he also has very significant uh, experience uh, in the past uh, on uh, diplomatic matters. So I, I think you'll find him uh, really qualified for this job. And right now, uh, this is an important position that uh, we're talking about. Finland, we all know, is uh, uh, not a member of NATO. Uh, they are having second thoughts for obvious reasons. And uh, I think all the encouragement that we can give them, uh, particularly now when uh, uh, the person, or the, the entity that doesn't want him, uh, doesn't want Finland there, can't do much about it because they're otherwise occupied, and we hope he'll uh, he'll continue to encourage that. So, uh, Mr. Hickey, thank you, and thank you to all of you who uh, are willing to uh, take these positions uh, and to serve. We're in a, a unique time right now. Uh, we hope things calm down quickly, but uh, it looks like uh, we may be in for the long haul, so all of you are going to have uh, your hands full. So with that, I'm going to excuse myself as I have uh, some other things I have to attend to. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, Senator Bridge. Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, to my committee colleagues and to the nominees. Congratulations to all of you. And I'll have questions for each of you, but I, I want to now uh, proudly introduce my longtime friend. Please do not hold that against him, but my longtime friend, Doug Hickey, who is here as the president's ambassador, to, a nominee to be ambassador to Finland, and he's joined by his wife, Dawn, who is also a close friend. Um, Doug is very qualified for this position for a couple of reasons. First, he has decades of experience, more than three decades of experience, holding senior-level positions in the telecom, internet, and technology industries, and he's been in the tech space his whole career as a founder and builder of numerous companies and also an investor in those companies. This background is particularly important for Finland because the technology export is that nation's key uh, industry, is that nation's key export industry, and they are a global leader. Doug's background in the tech space will make him a natural fit in the position. Doug also has, as a chairman of uh, ranking member, Rich <coughs> mentioned, uh, notable government experience because he was appointed by President Obama to head the U.S. Uh, involvement in the Milan World Expo in 2014. He's performed vital volunteer work for many philanthropic organizations, Catholic Relief Services, the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Center, his alma mater, Siena College, 
uh, his life experience, business background, innovation, deep intellect will be critical to this U.S.-Finland partnership. As Senator Risch mentioned, the U.S. relationship with Finland is a very strong one, but it's more important than ever. Finland has often played the role with the United States as an interlocutor on matters dealing with Russia and sometimes an interpreter as to Russian intent and actions. Finland has the European Union's longest border with Russia. So as Vladimir Putin continues the barbaric, unjust, illegal invasion of Ukraine, Doug will work tirelessly with the mission there in, um, in Finland to strengthen the U.S. commitment to Finland's security, especially as Finland is taking some steps that are quite unusual for them, delivery of weaponry to support Ukraine's defense, consideration of accession to NATO. Uh, he is an excellent and highly qualified choice for this position, and I strongly urge my committee colleagues, and then I'll strongly urge my colleagues on the floor to promptly support him. We need an ambassador in Finland as soon as we can. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and thank you, Mr. Hickey. I think you received uh, about as good an endorsement as you could receive. And, uh, and we also will be um, hearing from Alina Romanowski, who was nominated to be the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq. Ambassador Romanowski is a career member of the Senior Executive Service currently serving in the U.S. Uh, as the U.S. Ambassador to Kuwait. Previously, she sh served as the Department of State's Principal Deputy Coordinator for Counterterrorism. She joined the Department of State to establish the Middle East Partnership Initiative Office and served as its first director. In light of her broad foreign policy experience, leadership abilities, and distinguished U.S. government career, she is clearly highly qualified to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Iraq. Uh, welcome, Ambassador Romanowski. Uh, U.S. leadership is critical in addressing the dual concerns of security and human rights in Iraq. Progress on both issues depends on robust engagement between the United States and the Iraqi um, government. Next, I'll introduce Stephen Fagan, uh, who uh, is nominated for the position of U.S. Ambassador to Yemen. Mr. Fagan is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service class of Minister Counselor. Uh, he recently served as the Deputy Chief of Mission and later Charge d'Affaires of the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. Prior to that, Mr. Fagan held several other positions focused on the Middle East, uh, including Principal Officer at the U.S. Consulate General in Erbil, Iraq, and Director of the Office of Iranian Affairs in the State Department's Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. Uh, he earned a bachelor's from Williams College, uh, and, uh, uh, and he has demonstrated success as a leader in both Washington and abroad. Uh, so we welcome to you, Mr. Fagan, um, as well. Uh, and finally, uh, I would like to uh, introduce Erin uh, McKee, who is uh, nominated to be the Administrator for Europe and Eurasia at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, Ambassador McKee is clearly up to the challenge, ahead based on her experience uh, and her expertise. She is currently the U.S. Ambassador to the independent uh, state of uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, the Solomon Islands, uh, and, uh, uh, and the Republic of Vanuatu. Uh, uh, Ambassador McKee is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service uh, with the rank of career minister and brings a wealth of foreign policy and development experience to her position. Prior to her work in the Pacific Island region, she worked 
on Eastern Europe at US at USAID and in the private sector. Uh, she is, has a graduate, she's a graduate of the University of California, uh, and we welcome you uh, to uh, the hearing here today. Uh, and so um, uh, we will begin, but if you, Senator Cruz, would like to make an opening statement, uh, you're recognized for that purpose. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you to today's panelists. Congratulations on your nominations. If, if confirmed, each of you will be dispatched to regions that are in deep turmoil right now and that are beset by multiple crises. In Europe, as everyone knows, Russia has launched an unprovoked war, the largest land war that the continent has seen since World War II. Our allies face incalculable harm, and the existence of Ukraine hangs in the balance. In the Middle East, the Iranian regime has flooded the region with terrorism and violence, has seized control of entire countries, such as Lebanon, and seeks to build a nuclear arsenal that I believe there's an unacceptably high risk they would use against Israel or indeed against the American homeland. Many of these crises are self-inflicted. Since the earliest days of the Biden administration, Biden-Harris officials have pursued policies all but explicitly designed to weaken our allies and to embolden our enemies. In Europe, the Biden administration spent much of 2021 <clears throat> undercutting our Ukrainian allies militarily, economically, and diplomatically. The president inexplicably issued waivers for Nord Stream 2 providing Putin with an alternative route to send gas to Europe and exposing Ukraine to the existential conflict it is now facing. The administration at least twice withheld lethal assistance from our Ukrainian allies, aid they would have trained with and now be using, all in an effort to grease relations with Russia. Biden-Harris officials denied President Zelensky an early critical meeting with President Biden in order to try to coerce his approval for such policies. And of course, on the eve of war, State Department officials were dispatched to offer broad concessions to Russia that would have crippled NATO. And once they became public, that signaled weakness to both our allies and our adversaries. The State Department went so far as to pressure the Ukrainians to cede territory to Russia, the literal definition of European appeasement. At times like this, we need every ally we can find. But unfortunately, across the globe, the Biden administration has alienated many of our traditional allies. Yesterday, this committee heard testimony about India, from Assistant Secretary Liu. India is a critical ally across a number of areas, and the U.S.-Indian alliance has broadened and deepened in recent years. But under the Biden administration, it's gone backwards. And so, yesterday, in a United Nations General Assembly vote condemning Putin's aggression, the Indians abstained rather than stand with us against Russia. 
And today, there are reports that the Biden administration is contemplating imposing CATSA sanctions against India, the largest democracy on earth, a decision that I think would be extraordinarily foolhardy. India is not the only country to have voted against us and against condemning Russia. The United Arab Emirates also abstained in yesterday's vote. The UAE is a close ally of the United States and during the Trump administration was a critical player in the Abraham Accords that fundamentally transformed the entire Middle East and brought Israelis and Arabs together under American leadership. When the Biden administration took over, however, they made it a week one priority to tilt away from our regional allies and towards Iran. And they immediately dismantled terrorism sanctions on the Iran-controlled Houthis in Yemen. The Houthis, of course, didn't wait a day before escalating their attacks. And they eventually started launching terrorist attacks into the UAE itself. Critically, this week and this weekend, the Biden administration is looking to lock in their pivot towards Iran at breathtaking danger to our Middle East allies and to the United States itself. There are reports from Vienna that a new agreement from Iran will be announced imminently. This deal is nothing short of catastrophic. And I fully anticipate that the Biden administration will attempt to circumvent congressionally mandated review of the deal. The deal will provide Iran with a functionally unlimited nuclear program, facilitate the development of ICBMs, dismantle sanctions related to terrorism and human rights, and pour hundreds of billions of dollars into the regime's coffer, a regime headed by a theocratic ayatollah who chants death to America and death to Israel is on the verge of being massively funded by President Joe Biden. In these dangerous times, I look forward to hearing your testimonies and discussing each of these issues with you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, so once again, it is my pleasure to welcome our nominees to today's hearing. Thank you for taking the time to discuss your experiences and qualifications with us. And now we're going to turn to your opening statements, and I'll ask each of you to keep your statements to approximately five minutes, knowing that your full statements will be made part of the record without objection. Uh, we will start with Ambassador Romanowski and proceed in turn. Um, first, I have a few questions that speak to the importance of this committee <clears throat> and what and the um, responsibility we have to ensure that there is a responsiveness of all officials in the executive branch and that we expect uh, we will be seeking from you. And I would ask each of you to provide just a yes and no answer. Do each of you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Can each of you say yes? Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Uh, will each of you respond yes? Yes. 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 
do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Will each of you answer yes? Yes. 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 Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Well, that is fine, um, and uh, we will look forward to uh, your cooperation in the months and years ahead. Um, after you are confirmed. So we will begin with um, Ambassador Romanowski. We are now uh, going to recognize you for a five-minute statement. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I'd like to submit my complete testimony for the record. Chairman Markey, ranking, ranking Member Cruz, and members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Iraq. I want to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me, especially as a member of the career civil service. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee to defend and advance our nation's interest in Iraq. I'm grateful to share this day with my family. My husband, a retired U.S. Navy submariner, and I raised two sons, one making their way in the financial investment world and the other expecting to serve our nation when he completes the U.S. Navy's officer candidate school next month. My parents, who came to the United States in their 20s, instilled in me a deep sense of service, respect, and humility, and their guidance remains with me in spirit. My more than 40 years of public service have taken me across the departments of state and defense, USAID, and the intelligence community in positions mostly focused on the Middle East. If confirmed, I will draw on that broad experience in, to advance U.S. national security interests in Iraq and the region. It is the greatest honor to be entrusted with strengthening our relationship with Iraq. From my many years of experience in the Middle East, especially in my current role as ambassador to Kuwait, I know firsthand the importance of this critical strategic partnership. Iraq remains a foreign policy priority for the United States and is a cornerstone of regional stability. The United States is committed to deepening its enduring partnership with the Iraqi people. As Iraq learns to manage the COVID-19 pandemic and continues to rebuild Following the territorial defeat of ISIS, we are focused on bolstering Iraq as a sovereign, stable, secure partner, free from malign influence. We must stay engaged to ensure that Iraq can address internal and external threats, secure its borders, limit the influence of great power competitors, while respecting the human rights and fundamental freedoms of Iraqis. If confirmed, I will underscore the importance of Iraq charting an independent foreign policy and continuing cooperation with its regional neighbors to enhance its sovereignty, security, critical infrastructure, and economic development. The United States supports a stable, prosperous, and democratic Iraq that serves all its citizens, including its most vulnerable and marginalized communities. If confirmed, I will continue to prioritize U.S. assistance programs that encourage durable solutions for Iraq's most vulnerable populations. Since 2018 alone, the United States has provided over $500 million in assistance to support members of these communities. If confirmed, I look forward to meeting with these communities and addressing their concerns. The United States continues to work with our Iraqi partners as they seek to strengthen their democratic institutions, responsive governance, and the rule of law. If confirmed, 
Bolstering Iraq's independence and advancing citizens' rights will be a top priority in my engagements with Iraq's new government. I will encourage Iraq's political, economic, and civil society leaders to focus on building a prosperous and resilient Iraq. I will also encourage further cultural and educational exchanges between our two countries. Economic reform is essential for Iraq to prosper. If confirmed, I will continue to press the government of Iraq to diversify its economy, expand private sector growth, reduce corruption, improve transparency, and create new markets for U.S. exports. For example, I will vigorously advocate for Iraq to fulfill and even expand its arrangement to purchase U.S. rice and wheat. Our security partnership with Iraq is an essential component of our relationship and stability in the region. The combined joint task force operation Inherent Resolve has transitioned to an advise, assist, and enable mission. It continues to provide the Iraqi security services critical support for the enduring defeat of ISIS and retains the inherent right to self-defense. If confirmed, I will ensure that our security partnership continues to support security sector reform de-ISIS stabilization, counterterrorism, cooperation, and border security. We are invested in strengthening Iraqi security institutions, including the Peshmerga in the Iraqi Kurdistan region. The Iraqi Kurdistan region is considered an example of tolerance and peaceful co coexistence. I am concerned, however, about the backsliding in the area of human rights, in particular freedom of expression. If confirmed, I will work with our partners in the Iraqi Kurdistan region to ensure they maintain their standing as an example, working towards political and economic reforms, all while anchored within a federal Iraq. Finally, if confirmed, I look forward to leading our embassy in Baghdad. My highest priority will be the safety and security of over 25,000 Americans who live and work in Iraq. Thank you for the opportunity to appear here today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, Mr. Hickey, you're recognized for five minutes. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the privilege of appearing before you today. I am honored to be the nominee for U.S. Ambassador to Finland, and I'm deeply grateful to President Biden for the confidence he's placed in me. I'd like to thank my family and friends for all their support and love during this process. I'd like to thank my wife, who's with me here today, Dawn, and my children, Bob, Kristen, Cole, Parker, and Lyra, for all their love and support. The United States and Finland share close security, economic, geopolitical, and cultural ties. Like the United States, Finland is committed to safeguarding democracy, protecting fundamental human rights, combating climate change, promoting technological and economic advance, and ensuring peace and security throughout the world. I firmly believe we can continue to accomplish many American policy objectives with the support of our deep transatlantic cooperation with Finland. If confirmed, the following are the top priorities I would seek to advance. First, my top priority is always to ensure the safety and security of American citizens. I would work with Finnish officials in Embassy Helsinki to ensure Americans visiting or living in Finland were afforded all protections and rights to which they are entitled. I would do my utmost to protect the safety and well-being of embassy personnel and their families. I would also have an open-door policy to gather ideas on how to be the most effective team, how to keep our embassy community morale high, 
and how to best serve American people at home and abroad. A second priority, if confirmed, will be to further deepen our defense coordination with the Finns. As a NATO-enhanced opportunities partner, Finland has contributed much to our shared global defense objectives. The Finnish government announced in December that it would purchase 64 new F-35 fighter jets, which will deepen U.S.-Finland security and defense ties for decades to come. And as a fellow and like-minded member of the Arctic Council, Finland is inst an instrumental partner in shaping Arctic policy, a region of the world garnering increased attention for its economic, security, and geopolitical prospects. A third priority would be to advance American economic interest in Finland, particularly by growing and empowering bilateral business ties. The United States and Finland work well together as two of the world's leading technology innovators, with collaboration at all levels of the private sector, academia, civil society, and government. We should continue this work with Finland to open new sources of economic opportunity in areas such as green technologies, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and 5 and 6G. The United States should build upon our shared economic interests and capabilities with Finland not only to contribute to increased job creation and economic prosperity for both nations, but also because our shared values and technological prowess will provide a stronger defense against adversaries who may seek to compromise intellectual property or sensitive infrastructure. Lastly, if confirmed, I would work to advance joint efforts by the United States and Finland to address global challenges. While the Finnish and American people share a love for democracy and freedom, there are others around the globe seeking to impose their authoritarian beliefs. Russia's premeditated, unprovoked, and unjustified attack on Ukraine is just one example. These adversaries spread disinformation, distrust, disrupt peace, imprison dissenters, support violence, and suppress fundamental rights. With Finland, I believe the United States has a trusted partner in defending democratic values and countering tactics of authoritarian regimes and malicious non-state actors. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Finland on the unprecedented challenges facing our world, such as fighting climate change, safeguarding the rules-based international order, countering corruption, and combating COVID-19 and preventing future pandemics. If confirmed, I will work to ensure that the U.S. relationship with Finland is best equipped to address these and the challenges that come. Let me conclude by saying that it would be my honor to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Finland. Thank you for your time and consideration today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Hickey. Um, and now to um, you, Mr. Fagan. Welcome. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I would like to submit my complete testimony for the record. Without objection. Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Cruz, distinguished members of the committee, I'm thankful for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Republic of Yemen. I'm grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for this honor and their confidence in me. If confirmed, I commit to working closely with members of this committee and Congress on the critical U.S. foreign policy and national security interests in Yemen. First, I'd like to thank my family for their steadfast support 
during my 25 years in the Foreign Service, which has often taken me far away from them. My sister Randy and her husband Rob are in attendance today. I am also one half of a Foreign Service tandem couple. The other half, Natasha Franceschi, is Deputy Chief of Mission in Tunisia. We've served in some challenging places together, including Baghdad, and Natasha is watching these proceedings from Tunis. When I was in college in the late 1980s, I participated in a student exchange program to the USSR under President Reagan's US-Soviet Exchange Initiative. This was a life-changing experience that led me to pursue a career in diplomacy. I've spent much of my career working in and on conflict and post-conflict countries, and I've witnessed firsthand the human and physical devastation resulting from war, especially in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Iraq. The escalation of hostilities and dramatic increase in civilian casualties in Yemen over the last few months are deeply troubling, both for the long-suffering people of Yemen and for the entire Gulf region. <clears throat> However, continued conflict is not inevitable, and peace in Yemen is possible. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen, Tim Lenderking, to support UN-led efforts to secure a durable and inclusive resolution to the conflict, which also addresses Yemen's dire economic situation. I know we are all profoundly concerned by increasingly aggressive Houthi actions in recent months, including attacks impacting civilians and civilian infrastructure in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, using missile and armed drone technology provided by Iran. There are more than 130,000 Americans living in these countries, and their safety is under threat from such attacks. I assure you that if confirmed, I will have no higher priority than ensuring the safety and security of our citizens. The unlawful flow of weapons from Iran to the Houthis is also enabling the continued Houthi offensive in Marib, complicating efforts to get the parties to the negotiating table and extending the suffering of civilians. Strengthening enforcement of the targeted UN arms embargo for Yemen to cut off the flow of arms to the Houthis must be a priority. Mr. Chairman, the ongoing Houthi detention of current and former members of our local Yemeni staff in Sana'a is deplorable and an affront to the entire international community. The United States has communicated this to the Houthi leadership and the UN Security Council has condemned these Houthi actions in the strongest terms, as has the US Congress. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly to ensure the safety and well-being of all current and former U.S. government employees in Yemen and a return to U.S. control of our former embassy compound. On February 23rd, the Treasury Department announced additional designations of members of an international network led by IRGC Quds Force and Houthi financier Saeed al-Jamal involved in funding the Houthis' war against the government of Yemen. The United States will continue targeted designations of individuals and entities that seek to perpetuate the conflict and humanitarian crisis in Yemen for their own gain. The United States continues to lead the international community's humanitarian response to the dire humanitarian and economic conditions facing the people of Yemen, and our partners must also do their share to fund this response. Ensuring partners can deliver crucial assistance without interference or delay 
and enacting reforms to restore the foundations of Yemen's economy are critical. Our Yemen policy must continue to be fully aligned with our global policy priorities and principles. If confirmed, I will aim to strengthen coordination with the government of Yemen and other partners in our shared counterterrorism fight against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and other violent extremists. President Biden and Secretary, Clinton, Secretary Blinken have been clear that human rights are central to U.S. foreign policy. If confirmed, I will ensure that this remains the case in Yemen. Without accountability and justice, there cannot be a durable and lasting peace. Mr. Chairman, the challenges, the challenges in Yemen today are undoubtedly complex, as you know. Thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Fagan. Uh, and, uh, and now we'll turn to you, Ambassador McKee. Uh, welcome, and uh, whenever you feel comfortable, please begin. Thank you, Chairman. With your permission, I'd like my full testimony to be submitted for the record. Without objection. Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Cruz, Members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the Assistant Administrator for Europe and Eurasia for the United States Agency for International Development. I would like to thank the President for his trust in me and I'm deeply grateful for the honor to being nominated to serve in a position at USAID, an agency I dedicated much of my career to, at a moment when its leadership and development expertise are so urgently needed in Europe and Eurasia. I am grateful to the members of the committee to, with the, for the opportunity to speak with you today. And if confirmed, I pledge to work with you to advance our nation's interest in this critical region of the world. I would like to thank my family for their steadfast support, particularly my husband, Sean, and my daughter, Caitlin, who's here with me today. Their unconditional love and encouragement have been my rock throughout my public service career. From Moscow to Lima, from Baghdad to Jakarta, they have stood by my side and shared in the sacrifice and adventures of nearly 30 years in the Foreign Service. I could not have made this journey without them, and for that I am truly grateful. Since 1995, I have had the tremendous opportunity to represent the United States in nine overseas assignments, as well as here in Washington, D.C., with the USA Agency for International Development, and currently serving as U.S. Ambassador to Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu. It has been my privilege to serve the American people and advance our country's interests, promote our values and principles, and offer host country nations a model for hope, security, prosperity across a variety of diverse and complex contexts. If confirmed, I will have the distinct honor and responsibility to lead the USAID Bureau for Europe and Eurasia at a time when the stakes are as high as we have seen since USAID first opens it, opened its doors in the region's newly independent states 30 years ago. Although many of USAID's partners in Eastern Europe and Eurasia have achieved a remarkable democratic and economic progress, the region's development trajectory is under increasing threat. The Kremlin's malign influence across the region has expanded and intensified in recent years, and with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we are facing a grave and dangerous moment. The People's Republic of China is also increasing, increasingly leveraging its economic might to capture economies, undermine sovereign decision-making, and weaken democratic norms. While the people of the region work to secure prosperity, a stronger voice in government, and independence from foreign manipulation, 
powerful anti-democratic elites, both domestic and foreign, seek to bend the region toward a future of authoritarian rule and pervasive corruption. USAID is a critical counterweight to the predatory partnerships peddled by authoritarian regimes. USAID's work, work that reflects American quality, integrity, and commitment, helps host country partners secure mutually beneficial investments, connectivity, peace, security, and development impact with results that will be sustained and endure. And critically, most critically, USAID inspires hope among people of the region that the democratic dividend, that is good governance and a fair economic playing field, are attainable. Let me also note that while the region's challenges are great, so too are the opportunities. From democratic bright spots, such as Moldova and Armenia, to the increasingly perilous conditions in Belarus and the ongoing political crisis in Bosnia-Herzegovina. The region's people continue to stand up for transparent, accountable government, human rights, human dignity, at times at great risk to their own personal safety. Their efforts to lay the foundation for the region's democratic future must be protected and safeguarded. Their hard-fought gains to support their courageous efforts and encourage further progress is a top priority. Whether we are confronting the COVID-19 pandemic, corruption, economic or social inequality, climate change, threats to energy security, an outwardly aggressive Russia, an increasingly assertive China, or cyber threats, the United States is most effective when we partner with our allies and our friends and support those striving every day to, in their countries to build a democratic, prosperous, and stable future. If confirmed, I will work closely with our allies and our partners to promote peace and security, increase economic opportunity, and advance respect for fundamental freedom and human rights, building enduring partnerships with our host countries in the process. Thank you for this invitation to appear before you, and I welcome the opportunity to answer your questions. Thank you um, very much, Ambassador. And now we will turn to a round of questions uh, from the senators to our panel. Uh, the chair will recognize himself and begin with you, Ambassador McKee. We're seeing a humanitarian crisis unfold before our eyes and in and around Ukraine. As of this morning, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimated that since the start of the Russian invasion on February 24th, more than one million refugees have already fled Ukraine with the highest numbers uh, crossing into Poland and Hungary. Um, to the extent that you can answer, what is USAID doing right now to provide humanitarian assistance to Ukrainians and others who are fleeing the Russian invasion? And from your perspective, uh, what role should USAID be playing in the days and weeks and months and years uh, to come as the humanitarian needs become even greater? Thank you, Chairman, very much for that question. It is our utmost priority, if confirmed, and I will make it our utmost priority to stave off the human tragedy. I understand that in the past few days, USAID has announced the stand-up of a disaster assistance response team, or DART team, to oversee our humanitarian response in close partnership with the State Department's PRM Bureau, which will lead the refugee response in Poland and other neighboring countries. Administrator Power visited the Poland-Ukraine border over the weekend 
to see firsthand the growing humanitarian needs caused by the invasion and to signal USAID's prioritization of close coordination with our European partners. I also understand that from the earliest days, our Bureau of Humanitarian Response in USAID signaled our concerns about the growing threat from Russia to the European Union and to echo their counterpart in the EU. And I understand that in anticipation of a worst case scenario, they introduced maximum flexibility in its response mechanisms to be able to scale up and deliver the American assistance, foreign assistance through our UN partners and allies where it's needed most. On February 27th, the United States announced nearly 40, $54 million in additional humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, including 28 million for USAID to support critically needed healthcare, safe drinking water, sanitation, hygiene, supplies, and protection for vulnerable children. So we are prioritizing, as I understand, the safety and security, not only of the refugees in the crisis that we're facing, but of our staff and citizens within Ukrainian borders and implementing partners who remain bravely protecting and safeguarding U.S. investments where they can. Everything, if confirmed, everything that we can do to stave off this human tragedy, deliver humanitarian assistance, deliver a response immediately, and build the foundation for recovery in the medium and long term should the crisis hopefully wind down is will be my top priority if confirmed. Okay, thank you. And uh, as you know, the Biden administration increased its request for assistance to Europe by 10.8 million for fiscal year 2022 for activities including supporting the rule of law and democracy in Central Europe, combating anti-Semitism and strengthening energy security and diversification. How is USAID programming furthering those goals, and are there uh, other types of programs that you would prioritize in the region? Thank you, Senator. That is an important question as well, and I think today it's more uh, acute and critical than ever to stop the democratic backsliding and provide market-based solutions for energy diversification to stop the dependence on Gazprom and the Kremlin, and to identify ways in which we can support the countries of Eastern Europe and Eurasia to continue their Euro-Atlantic integration on an accelerated path. And that means shoring up both democratic institutions as well as civil society to give people a voice and an opportunity to be able to strengthen good governance as well as um, the free and independent media and other programs that I know exist that need to be amplified now more than ever. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, let me turn now and recognize Senator Cruz for a round of questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Fagan, let's start with you. When you and I sat down and met, you emphasized the UN-led political process. This week, the UN Security Council approved a resolution which designates the Houthi militia as a terrorist organization making it subject to sanctions, along with renewing asset freezes and travel bans and extending the arms embargo. This is a significant development, to say the least. What signal does this send when the United Nations Security Council 
is acting upon a stronger and more unified message against terrorism, while one of Biden's first moves in office was to remove the Houthis as a designated terrorist group? Senator, thank you for the question. And as I noted in my opening remarks, um, I share your concerns about the Houthis' deplorable actions, their terrorist attacks uh, using ballistic missile and drone technology against the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, as the president has said, um, the issue of um, a possible um, designation of the Houthis as an FTO is under review by the administration. Um, my understanding is that that review um, is considering the anticipated impact uh, of such a designation on the behavior of the Houthis, as well as the anticipated impact on the humanitarian situation. Well, Mr. Fagan, I can say we can assess the impact so far, and it's been disastrous. The Biden administration ostentatiously made it a week one priority to undo terrorism sanctions on the Iran-controlled Houthis. On January 25th, just five days into the administration, they approved all transactions involving the Houthis for a month. On January 27th, in his first appearance in the press room, Secretary Blinken said he was, quote, particularly focused on the question of undoing the terrorism designations. On February 5th, the State Department announced they would be delisting those sanctions. And we know what happened next. That very weekend, the Houthis launched missiles at civilians in the city of Marib, signaling the beginning of an offensive that would become a bloodbath, and they launched armed drones into Saudi Arabia. After a year of such relentless terrorism, the Biden administration reluctantly announced that it was imposing some terrorism sanctions on the Houthis but not yet reversing their decision. Let me ask you a question I asked you in my office. Do you believe the Houthis are terrorists? Well, Senator, as I, as I noted, um, the Biden administration um, has condemned the Houthis' terrorist attacks on Saudi Arabia and the UAE using ballistic missiles and drones. Okay, let me try that question again. Do you believe the Houthis are terrorists? Senator, um, Senator, as I said, um, the Biden administration has condemned the Houthis' terrorist attacks. And as I said as well... Yeah, I have um, to say, you said that in my office also. You said they commit terrorist attacks, but you are unwilling to say they're terrorists. Explain to me how exactly that works, like how people who commit terrorist attacks are not terrorists. Um, Senator... Uh, let me just say again that the issue of an FTO designation is under review by the administration. How many terrorist attacks do they have to commit before you'll admit they're terrorists? Senator, the administration has condemned the Houthis for their terrorist attacks on Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Except the administration is unwilling to acknowledge the obvious that they're terrorists. Is, is one terrorist attack enough? Is 10? Is 100 terrorist attacks? I just want to know... How many civilians do the Houthis need to murder before the Biden administration will acknowledge the obvious, which is that they're terrorists? Yeah. Senator, I deeply share your concerns about the Houthis. The Houthis have committed some deplorable acts 
not only these attacks on the UAE and Saudi Arabia, which threaten our own citizens there. We have 130,000 citizens, uh, or more than that, residing in the UAE and Saudi Arabia. The Houthis currently um, have in detention 13 current and former members. All right, all right let, let, let me ask, ask one final question, both, both to you, Mr. Fagan, and to you, Ms. Romanowski. In my opening remarks, I discussed my profound concerns with this administration's foolhardy Iran deal. The basis of that deal is that Iran, the Ayatollah and the Mullahs, will be flooded with hundreds of billions of dollars in immediate resources from sanctions relief. Based on both of your assessments of Yemen and Iraq, respectively, and as a matter of your professional expertise in the region, do you believe that if the Iranian regime receives hundreds of billions of dollars, that that money will go to finance terrorism in Yemen and in Iraq? Mr. Fagan, you can start. Um, Senator Cruz, thank you for the question. Again, I share your concerns about the malign activities of the Iranian regime, uh, but that is a speculative question. Uh, I'm asking your professional judgment, and this judgment goes to your competence in terms of whether you should be confirmed to this post. Yeah. Based on the behavior of Iran, do you believe if they get hundreds of billions of dollars, they will use that to fund terrorism? And I'd like a yes or no based on your professional judgment. Again, Senator, it's it's... Unfortunately, a speculative question I'm, because there that's, isn't I'm a deal. Asking for your but I, I, I can certainly say that the Iranians um, will not use funds for the betterment of their people. Ms. Romanowski. Uh, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, I also share your concerns uh, with Iran, uh, Iran's malign uh, activity and role in the region. Uh, Iran uh, remains a primary enduring threat to both Iraq and the region. Um, it has increasingly sophisticated military cap capabilities, so it supports broad proxy networks, um, and it has demonstrated that it periodically um, uh, is willing to use force against U.S. allies. The uh, Biden-Harris administration uh, has uh, determined that getting back into the JCPOA is the best Ms. way. Ms. Romanowski, you're, you're reading a statement. I just am asking, will you answer the question? Do you believe, based on your professional judgment, they will use hundreds of billions of dollars to finance terrorism, yes or no? Well, first of all, I, I am not privy to any of the uh, uh, negotiations that are going on. But it is very clear in uh, the Iranian um, history that they have uh, used as mu uh, their resources and their funding that they can get to finance um, their proxy networks and to continue to um, spread their malign activities across the region. Thank you. Senator from uh, Connecticut. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. The theory here goes that if we stay out of a nuclear agreement with Iran, if we continue to apply sanctions on Iran, then that will decrease their support for terrorist groups in the region. There is no evidence to suggest that is the case. In fact, if you look at the period of time since we withdrew from the agreement, all we have seen is an increased level of Iranian involvement in Yemen, an increased amount of integration between Iran 
and the Houthi forces there. What we have seen is that support for Iranian proxy groups in Iraq has increased. Those groups started firing at U.S. troops after we withdrew from the agreement. So this notion that if the United States continues to apply maximum pressure, that that is somehow going to convince the Iranians to stop funding groups in the region um, just doesn't bear out in reality. And as to this question of the designation of the Houthis as an FTO, um, we have to deal in the world of reality, right? Separate and aside from what you think that term means, the practical impact of designating the Houthis as an FTO is famine. Is famine. And that's not me making that claim. That's the UN. That's the World Food Program. The World Food Program says very clearly, if you designate the Houthis as an FTO, we cannot operate inside Yemen. They go further. Commercial food operators will not be able to operate inside Yemen. Now, maybe... That's a flaw of our statutes, right? That the designation of an entity as a foreign terrorist organization has such extreme consequences for the people of that country. But that is the reality. And so we have to think seriously about whether we want to subject millions of Yemenis to starvation as a consequence of that designation and whether that's better or worse for the people that we are trying to protect. And I guess my only ask of you, Mr. Fagan, is that you consult uh, along with the administration with those operators on the ground who are going to be forced to pull out and submit the Yemeni people to famine and starvation if we go forward with this designation, given the fact that there are so many other ways that we can impose sanction on Houthi leaders, as the Biden administration already has. Um, Let me ask you this question, Mr. Fagan. Um, My sense is that the Saudi-led coalition has not changed their perspective on the path to peace, escalation, escalation, escalation. We have to get into a de-escalatory cycle in Yemen in order to get to the table. We have been pressing the Saudis for the last year to open up the airport to provide humanitarian pathways to, uh, for relief uh, agencies to restart the Yemeni uh, economy. But at the foundation, we've got to be able to convince both sides, the Houthis and the Saudis, that more escalation um, in Sada province, in Marib, is just going to lead to more of the same. Am I correct in that assumption? Senator, thank you um, for the question, and I share your concerns about the humanitarian um, situation and about escalation. As you know, in February of 2021, uh, the administration um, ended um, our uh, support for offensive military operations in um, Yemen. Uh, That included um, the suspension of certain uh, sales of munitions to Saudi Arabia. The administration has been pressing Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and all parties um, to de-escalate. Now, on a a positive front, the Saudis, the UAE, the government of Yemen, they support this UN-led process. In fact, the administration has been successful 
um, in marshaling an international consensus in favor of this process, including at the Security Council. Uh, so we are behind this process, and we can bring these countries along. I, I think we're going to have to be tougher on, on our allies and partners in the region. We've got to be equally tough on the Houthis, but we've got to deliver, a, I think, a stronger message to uh, our allies who continue to bring the, the fight to Yemen, notwithstanding the fact that it doesn't seem to be accruing to the benefit of their interests. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'll submit a question to the record um, for uh, Ms. McKee. Um, I, I want to make sure that USAID's activities in funding um, anti-propaganda and anti-misinformation work in Europe is integrated with the work of the Global Engagement Center. I hope that we're going to pass a supplemental appropriations bill for um, Ukraine that will include a dramatic increase in the Global Engagement Center's funding. That means um, we'll be able to fight Russian propaganda about their efforts in Ukraine. USAID does a lot of this work as well. And sometimes I worry that uh, the, the two are not always working in close coordination. And so I'll submit a question for the record um, on, on that subject. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Senator from uh, Virginia. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to all the nominees. Uh, it's a good panel, three career foreign service, one political nominee. I think that mixture that we have uh, in our ambassadors and foreign service professionals abroad of career and uh, political nominees is a, is a good mixture, and you really represent the best of this tradition. Mr. Fagan, I just particularly want to just comment about you. Um, your spouse is, uh, you're part of a two State Department family, and your spouse is the DCM in Tunisia. And that, uh, it's hard for families to serve abroad, and it's especially hard for them to serve abroad in split locations. I remember the first time I was visiting Egypt as a member of the committee, and one of the uh, uh, foreign service professionals there had to leave to go to a Skype date with her husband about six time zones apart. And I said, that's a long way. She said, this isn't the farthest apart that we've been. We've been farther apart than that. So I just want to acknowledge the service of your family and so many in the foreign service world. Um, Mr. K, I want to ask you a question about the discussions in Finland about NATO. So really interesting. Um, in 2017, the support of the Finnish population for NATO accession was 19%. Um, recently, a poll had it at 53% for reasons that are pretty obvious. Um, and the polling also suggested that support for joining NATO would be 66% of Sweden also were to join. Finland and Sweden have traditionally had a lot of defense cooperation. Um, however, Finnish political parties are still fairly opposed, at least kind of in their stated position to NATO accession. An important role of U.S. ambassador is to, is to promote U.S. interests but not get involved in domestic politics. The question of whether Finland were to join NATO is very much a domestic political issue, but it also certainly touches upon values and principles really important in the United States. So should you be confirmed and be in this position and able to offer information and answer questions about NATO, how would you strike that balance between, again, offering advice and answering questions and not, not – uh, overly engaging in, the, in this issue as a matter of domestic Finnish politics. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator, for that question. It, it's clearly timely uh, what's happened. I've been tracking the polling information as, as you have as well in, in the public domain. 
it's pretty striking what's happened and how quickly it's happened. Um, the view of, of Finnish people has changed pretty dramatically relative to NATO to the positive. Um, and the reason, as you said, is really obvious based upon what's happening uh, with Russia and Ukraine. Finland shares the largest uh, border uh, in Europe with, um, with Russia, 800 miles, and has had a nuanced relationship uh, with Russia for many, many years. You talked about it earlier of them not only as being an interlocker, but as an interpreter for many others, which is a, a huge value to us, quite frankly, I think. Um, I, I think what we can do, or and I would do if confirmed, is to make sure parties at all levels of, of uh, civil society in Finland understand uh, the benefits of NATO, uh, but we have to be thoughtful that it's a sovereign decision that they're going to make. So I think our role is really more information and education. Um, and the Finnish people and the Finnish government are clear-eyed, I think, on how they approach the Russians. So I think our best role is, is more information and education uh, and support if they decide to make such a move. Thank you, Mr. Hickey, for that. And I want to uh, uh, thank my colleagues, especially uh, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch. I have a uh, bill that I've had, a bipartisan bill, before, pending before the committee for some time that would clarify that the United States could never withdraw from NATO simply by a presidential action, but that it would take a vote of either the Senate or an act of Congress. The Senate ratified the NATO treaty. Um, that bill has been cleared for uh, presence on our next business meeting on the 23rd of March. It's bipartisan. I look forward to taking it up. Um, Ambassador Romanowski, I want to ask you a question quickly. I also have a piece of legislation that's bipartisan that's through the committee and on the floor now to repeal the Iraq war authorizations from 1991 and 2002. I'm not going to ask you about that. Your testimony very plainly points out the many areas where we are working in tandem as partners with Iraq, and I believe the repeal of a war authorization against the government of this partner country would be wise. I want to ask you just one question, though, about Iraq right now. Often as I visited, the uh, the state of relations between um, the Kurds and the Iraqi central government is sort of up and down and controversial, and sometimes it's more mellow. What What is your kind of current understanding of dialogue between Erbil and the Kurdish region of Iraq and the central government? Um, thank you for that question, Senator. Um, your, uh, I share your view that uh, there is often um, a difference of view between uh, the Iraqi uh, Kurdistan region, regional government, and also um, the government in, 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 uh, in Iraq. Uh, I do think it, a lot of it depends on the issues. Uh, there was recently a, different, uh, a ruling uh, regarding their um, oil uh, sharing. Uh, I will say that... Um, if I'm, if, if I'm confirmed, uh, one of the things and one of the priorities will be to ensure that uh, we, um, can, uh, we, can, we can facilitate and we can also uh, represent the interests of both, uh, of both parties should they ask us. So uh, it is, uh, it, we, we, we want to see them as, par as good partners. We want to see them working out their, inter uh, their differences. Um, and we want to also be there to promote um, a, a good relationship between those two governments. It's critical for, for Iraq's stability and its prosperity. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Chair recognizes the senator from Maryland. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to all of you on your nominations. Uh, Ambassador Romanowski, let me follow up uh, where Senator Kane left off, uh, because uh, we've seen a fair amount of political instability created uh, from the lack of formation uh, of a government. Um, how do you assess the current situation, um, and what is the United States uh, doing now uh, to encourage uh, the formation of a government? Well, first of all, um, uh, as a result of the elections, I think we are, we are, uh, we are optimistic that the elections actually um, created some welcome surprises. For example, you have 30 um, uh, indep independent candidates who were elected. Uh, they, it is stalled right now over um, the interest between certain parties, and I know that we are working hard to, again, uh, try to bring the parties to uh, view the interests of a strong uh, sovereign Iraq to be um, uh, what is at uh, what is at stake and what is in their interest in informing their government as they go forward. Uh, if I am confirmed that uh, keeping that uh, the working with the new government and ensuring that they can um, uh, work for their people and bring their interest of Iraq to uh, to um, to working together uh, as uh, as they have different views is going to be very important in a in a critical component of what I will be doing uh, on a day daily basis. If any uh, evidence of what my um, of what Ambassador Tuller is doing now. Right. Um, as you indicated uh, in response to Senator Kane's question, you have the recent decision by the Iraqi Federal Supreme Court uh, regarding Kurdistan's uh, oil laws, uh, deeming them to be unconstitutional. Uh, would you agree that it would be in everyone's interest to have implementation of that ruling stayed uh, so that we can proceed with um, negotiations on that point and as we work to try to, they, they work to try to form a government? Uh, my understanding uh, is that they are uh, talking about uh, what exactly the implementation of that law, uh, but until they have worked out those, my understanding is that um, uh, things will be going on as, uh, you know, as they have been before. But um, that is correct. Right. I, I think the, the KRGs indicated that they're going to continue to proceed. Do you, do you see the timing of that uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, being part of the efforts to pressure uh, the Kurds and others with regard to the formation of a, a government? Uh, I think the Iraqi Supreme Court uh, based their decision, from what I understand, on the technicalities of the issue. Um, and um, uh, I think that's where they came out on that one. Okay. So you don't, you don't see the, the timing uh, after all these years as being in any way curious or connected to the ongoing effort to form a government? Uh, it, does bring, it does make uh, me pause about that. Uh, there are a lot of decisions that come about in that region for the many years I've been working on, and I, uh, we can read a lot into it. Uh, and, um, uh, but yeah. Well, I, I just, uh, you know, obviously we've got to make sure that uh, we do what we can um, to support the efforts to form a government. What is your assessment of um, ISIS's strength right now uh, in Iraq and whether or not uh, in this period of time where there's some vacuum in the formation of government, they're uh, attempting to exploit the situation? Uh, well, at this point, uh, we're always uh, very uh, uh, concerned about uh, you know, the resurgence of, of ISIS, the fact that we have uh, transitioned to uh, an advise, assist, and enable uh, mission that allows us to work, continue to work with the Iraqi security forces 
uh, on their fight against ISIS uh, is, um, uh, it convinces me and, and leads me very strongly to believe that uh, we, while they are forming a government, uh, they will remain, the Iraqi ser security services will remain vigilant on, on ISIS. Right. Again, I think one of the challenges we got is some of the divisions within the country um, among different groups, and 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 not just the the Shia militia, which obviously are a, a malign influence, uh, but even among uh, other other parties, uh, really need to make sure that we 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 bring people together quickly. Um, just in 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 closing here, uh, Ambassador McKee, congratulations on your nomination. I know you talked a little bit about our ongoing. Uh, assistance uh, to Ukraine to support the efforts in Ukraine. As you know, the president has just uh, proposed a, a supplemental that includes, uh, I think, $5 billion for different forms of humanitarian economic assistance. Could you talk a little bit about how you envision that being implemented? Thank you, Senator. I'm not privy to the sort of contours or the um, uh, intent behind the bill, but I do know that um, the wise way forward would be to build on the investments that we've made to date that we are currently struggling to safeguard given the kinetic activity in the country and our concern for the safety and security of our staff and our implementing partners. Looking ahead, obviously, the most important thing will be to support the Ukrainian people and their aspirations to continue to build a democracy, to continue to move forward on Euro-Atlantic integration, to continue to diversify their economy, their energy resources, and lean westward. Um, and that would be, if confirmed, my top priority. Our assistance resources can go far building on the investments we've made to date in response to both the needs on the ground as well as what we know are going to be critical in the days ahead. I, I hope we'll move quickly to... Uh to pass that supplemental request. Thank you. Uh, I thank the senator, um, and I would like to thank each of our nominees for uh, being here today and for answering the questions uh, so attentively, and I'm certain that each of them will be an asset to the United States in their new positions, and I look forward to hearing about the good and important work that you will be doing. Um, Senators will have until the close of business tomorrow to revise and extend their remarks and submit any questions for the record. Uh, with that, in the thanks of the committee and uh, uh, in the hope that we can get all of you in your positions very quickly, this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>